Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. Stephen is on a well-deserved holiday this week, spending time with five people maximum. Outdoors only. Yeah, outdoors only, of course. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're discussing Alex Salmon's new party. And you ask us, is Keir Starmer preparing for a reshuffle? So last Friday, Alex Salmond announced that he will be making yet another comeback, this time with his own new political party called Alba. But I've heard that I may not be pronouncing that correctly. So, Alva, maybe you can you can clear that up for me. But the idea is that uh, <laughs> the idea is the party will run not for the constituencies up for grabs in the in the Holyrood elections, but for the for the list, mm-hmm. which is the second half of the voting system. There, the intention is to try and get a super majority for pro independence parties in that election result. Amber, you've been Alba, sorry. <laughs> Albert. We have to leave that in because I think this is going to be a problem for as long as this party exists. <laughs> you've been um, you've been sort of looking at how this could possibly play out in the electoral system. Mm. Does it have any chance, and and what's likely to happen? Yeah, so I think the thing is that on the surface level, it's entirely plausible and makes complete sense, which is why it is easy for Alex Salmond and the people defecting from the SNP to Alba or Alaba. Yes, still don't know how to pronounce it, despite (laughs) having a name slightly, slightly similar to it. Um, There's a kind of easy case to make that because they aren't standing candidates against the SNP in the constituency elections, which are elected by first past the post, exactly like Westminster, and they're only standing for the list. So... When you're casting your vote for the Scottish Parliament, you elect, you know, your your local member of the Scottish Parliament by first past the post like you would for Westminster. But then you also have a second vote because as well as being in your individual constituency, you're also in one of eight regions. And you can, with PR, proportional representation, demonstrate your preference between the parties rather than between candidates on a regional level in every of the eight regions seven MSPs are elected as a way of reflecting all of the proportions rather than just the first Mm. past the post it basically means that 
the SNP have a free hit in those constituency elections, which is where they do elect most of their members of the Scottish Parliament. And there are also more. There are 73 constituency MSPs and there are only 56 list MPs. So that's sort of where the bulk of the elections happen. There's a kind of simple logic, which is the the line that Alex Salmond was really pushing at the conference, as you say, he really made it very explicit that, you know, that this would be helping, that this would be an entirely positive thing. And I wrote it down because I find it so funny. He said, you know, if we are able to assist in achieving our country's independence, that's more than enough for me. And so I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon is delighted that he's um, stepping up to help her out by launching his own political party. But I think that that demonstrates the problem really where you can make this case that basically if SNP voters or just pro-independence voters were trying to vote tactically and to maximise the pro-independence representation in Parliament, there would be a case to be made that you give the SNP your vote for the constituency and once they have kind of maxed out the number of constituency MSPs they can elect, then by people voting for ALBA, then you end up getting more pro-independence MSPs as a result because you have the the full proportion that have already voted SNP sort of banked in on the constituency level and then you have extra ones because of the proportion who supported ALBA. So you can kind of see the logic by which this doesn't damage the SNP, it only boosts pro-independence representation in Parliament, which is what Alex Salmond was arguing. But obviously, in practice, there are so many things wrong with that. And I actually think just the most important one is the way it is, even if I think you don't know that much about politics, everyone knows that it is funny, this idea that Alex Salmond is launching his own political party just to like lend Nicola Sturgeon a helping hand. That's plainly ridiculous. And, And I think that then all the problems flow from that. Like Alba kind of fails on its own terms because... The Scottish Greens basically already perform that function in the Scottish parliamentary system where lots of people just support the Greens, but they're also seen as a good pro-independence tactical vote on the list system. And obviously there are, I mean, I don't know how many socially conservative, pro-independence, pro-tactical voting voters there are. There must be two of them, you know, people who think, well, I, I support independence, but I'm not voting SNP and I want to vote tactically, but I'm not going to vote for the Greens. So thank God there's a new party for me that takes all my boxes. Like plainly can't be very many people, but it could be, I suppose. Basically, in general, it's not a very obvious tactical vote because that party already exists. Also, the, the very idea of tactical voting within that system is is like much more fraught than that. That there do seem to be cases where a tactical vote for the Greens has boosted the pro-independence presence within the Scottish Parliament. But there are other times where the SNP does miss out by the way people have voted on the list vote. So it's not really that clear cut. And the SNP very obviously doesn't want people voting for this party and doesn't see it as a party that will help them get a pro-independence supermajority, then like this idea that that's this party's function in the Scottish political ecosystem is just like demonstrably false. You know, it's there as a thorn in Nicola Sturgeon's side. And I suppose as a sort of, as a lever that you can pull if you are, 
in favor of Scottish independence, but you basically want to give Nicola Sturgeon a kicking. I think that's like a more accurate reading of what this party is doing. And I think in terms of, if you think of that as its aim rather than a, a sort of an electoral one, then I think it's it's more complicated whether it'll achieve that aim or not because it it is already causing a little bit of damage, I think, to the SNP in that it is just such an obvious distraction. Even over the weekend, it was, I'm, I'm sure this won't be the case every week, but the pro-independence voices on the Sunday shows tended to be from the new party, which is obviously of interest because it had only just launched, but they also will be having an input and their defections from the SNP are making the headlines. So there isn't a unified independence voice anymore. So it's just this very obvious manifestation of a really uncomfortable one of the divisions that have been there within the SNP for a very long time. So it's not a very good look for in, for the independence movement as a whole when these divisions are right there, so glaringly obvious to the electorate. So I think that if you're there just as a thorn in Nicola Sturgeon's side, you can expect the party to have limited success, you know, to have some success. And it kind of already has already, even though maybe in terms of gaining seats at Holyrood, that's looking a bit less likely. But what did you make of of the launch initially? I don't know if you managed to catch the absolutely disastrous press conference. Do you think they stand a chance of, of winning seats? Well, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Everyone has been focusing on sort of what does it mean for the SNP? And you explained really clearly about how it could play out in the voting system that they have for the Scottish elections. But actually, one of the one of the outcomes that hasn't necessarily been focused on is that just they don't get very much traction at all. Obviously, they had the media spotlight on them over the weekend because it was news and, and you had two MPs defecting to Alba and some councillors are defecting and you know there's probably going to be a trickle of those stories for quite a while and you know that there's always going to be media interest in that because like you say it is a party division story isn't it it's a bit like when those Labour MPs peeled off the Labour Party to form the independent for change or whatever they ended up being called and that was very very exciting at the time and and of course petered out into nothing electorally significant other than a terrible electoral cycle for the Labour Party so I think that's probably going to be the most likely manifestation of this of this newcomer to, to Scottish politics if you've even heard of Alba by the time the elections come round, you know, which is probably not necessarily that likely for the casual voter, you see it on there. The only thing you're likely to know about it is, oh, you know, that's that splinter party that Alex Salmond decided to do after all that malarkey at the inquiry. You know, it's just mm. it just has negativity written all over it. And, you know, that might not necessarily make Alex Salmon look very good because, you know, he is someone, it's a bit of a cliche that he's always trying to make a comeback in politics. There's an assumption on his part and his supporters part that there's still a cult of personality around him that's strong enough to, to try and um, to try and shoulder a new party off the back of it, which given how unpopular he is among Scottish voters at the moment doesn't seem to be true anymore. So it makes probably makes him look even worse in most casual voters' eyes. But then it makes the SNP look disorganised and negative as well and divided, which has been the story pretty much, you know, ever since the, the inquiries got underway into, into the Scottish government's handling of harassment claims. And you could see that slowly the 
the, the polling has been declining ever since that first performance, at, at that first um, time that Nicola Sturgeon was up in front of the inquiry. So I think this is this will do more damage because a party that's divided is not an attractive party, you know, regardless of what the landscape of politics is at, at any given time. So I think that will probably be the most likely manifestation of this if it causes any dent at all. And then like you, I was I was thinking of who, who on earth this party could possibly appeal to, because obviously the SNP has been in, in a better shape in terms of unity. And you have lots of different groups who are unsatisfied with Nicola Sturgeon's leadership for a number of reasons, even though, you know, you still have quite an impressive amount of loyalty in the party, which, you know, <laughs> parties in Westminster often seem to be quite envious of, of the way that the SNP still manages to, to retain this veneer of unity, even when there's been such rancour. But yeah, you have the type of people who who are salmoned loyalists who a couple of them have have defected and you have you'll have a lot of people sort of in the party's ranks who who may not defect but still you know have taken his side in the salmon v sturgeon row i don't know how how many voters there are who who fit under that label judging by the popularity of alex Salmond, not many and then you have the sort of to the people to the left of the SNP who, although they have supported the SNP traditionally because of its social democratic values, you know, feel that it could be less technocratic, less centrist, you know, the common wheel group style people, they're more likely to, you know, if they wanted to vote for a different pro-independence party to vote green or to vote green for their second vote. So I don't really see that socially conservative pro-independence, but anti-SNP demographic being there to make very much of a difference, if you see what I mean. I don't really see enough of a demographic for for this new party to appeal to, but perhaps they've got some kind of polling that we don't know about. I was joking this morning before I wrote Morning Call on it that I do suppose the bottom line is that there is no polling on this, so we just don't know. And because, as we were saying at the very beginning, it is theoretically possible that lots of SNP voters would, despite the wishes of the SNP leadership, all decide that the best way of getting a a pro-independence presence in Holyrood would be to vote Alba at the list stage. And then they get a super majority for independence. Like it isn't, it is sort of in theory possible that that would happen. Mm. And, And I suppose until we see the polling, we don't know for sure. But I think you're completely right to mention quite how unpopular Alex Salmond is in Scotland. I mean, Boris Johnson is famously incredibly unpopular in Scotland and is a sort of unknown Achilles heel of the Conservative Party there. And Alex Salmond, I mean, according to polling last August, there doesn't seem to be much of a reason why it would have changed much since then, because, you know, this was already after the ending of, of his trial. In August, he was just as unpopular in Scotland as Boris Johnson. And clearly that doesn't mean that he is unpopular with everybody, but it doesn't seem like he would have a huge personal following. So I, I suppose it is just very complicated in the Scottish voting system, how this actually makes an electoral difference, whether this ends up slightly dampening support for Scottish Labour at the list stage or for the Greens or even for the Scottish Conservatives, by a tiny margin that makes a difference to who actually gets those seats at the list stage. But it might not really get to that. And I think that, you know, I think you were right to to really emphasise that this is just going to be known in the public 
consciousness as the Alex Salmon party. Like you couldn't really, like if it was called the Alex Salmon party, I think it would be exactly the same. Easier to um, Yeah. <laughs> and easier for people called Alpha. But I think if you, if you see it through that lens, you can think of the kinds of people who want to support Alex Salmond and who identify with his brand of politics as as opposed to Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP or a tactical vote for the Greens. But that does seem like quite a small core of people. So the problem is just the damage it does to to the broader independence movement and to the SNP and the sort of the broader drag on the political discourse for the SNP and pro independence conversation. But of course, there's there's an element that we haven't we've sort of touched on, but we haven't talked about explicitly, which is the questions posed by his attempted return to public life. Because not that long ago, there was this criminal trial going on. He was acquitted of all of the charges against him. But the defence approach or that argument was summarised by his own defence witness as, you know, I'm... I'm sleazy, but but not a criminal. And the the general thrust of some of the argument in that in that court case was that his behaviour had been inappropriate, but not criminal. So by the account of even the people defending Alex Salmond, he quote could have been a better man. And when we've been talking about it, you know, during the trial and in the aftermath of the trial, he has been a, a former politician and a private citizen undergoing. A criminal trial and then he was acquitted of all the charges against him but now he's attempting a return to public life and he wants to be an elected politician again and the strange thing is that that no one or hardly anyone will say that he's unfit to stand for the Scottish Parliament I don't think I've heard that from anyone explicitly and the only way that you hear this debate is sort of the SNP who obviously have lots of other reasons to not want him back on the political scene you know, say, you know, there, you know, there are serious questions about whether he is fit to return to public life. But it is just, I think, a a tricky one because he's trying to carve out a different role. Is it acceptable for someone seeking public office to have behaved inappropriately? Parking all of the all of the criminal trial. If that is how his behavior was described when he was at the top of Scottish politics and one of the most powerful men in Scotland. I don't know how people are meant to respond. I think there's a a little bit of a paralysis around the conversation because there was a very recent criminal trial. And the way you talk about that is very different to how you talk about non-criminal inappropriate behaviour. So people are finding it difficult to say, well, I don't know if we if we really want a former politician who behaved inappropriately back at the top of public life. And this must be, you know, incredibly difficult for the people who brought those allegations and so on. Yeah, I think it's it's really telling, isn't it, that there is this tendency to merge the two. So just because he was cleared of all these sexual assault charges in the criminal trial, or rather one of them was not proven, there's a tendency to think, okay, well, you know, he he was cleared of these things. And so we move on to whether or not the Scottish government handled it properly or whether or not his party would, would make any difference to the 
pro-independence cause in in Scotland, you know, what he means for the future of Nicola Sturgeon's career, etc. Like very political debates, like the kind of conversations that we've been having on the podcast. And so there is a legitimate conversation to be had about whether or not we should feel comfortable about someone who, you know, so publicly has had these things said about him launching straight back into politics. You know, there's not been a gap. There's not been a period of reflection. And just because he has been tried and then the trial is over doesn't mean that we can't discuss that and what it means for the people who made allegations about him and, and what it means for everyone else who is who has alleged inappropriate behaviour on the part of male politicians. You know, it doesn't say great things that that's not at the top of the conversation. And maybe it's the job of journalists to make sure that that is something that, that is discussed when Alba's electoral prospects are in the spotlight or, you know, another politician defects to the party, for example, perhaps it's the responsibility of journalists not to be so squeamish. Yeah, and and the thing is, I had a slight sense watching that press conference after the launch of the new party, that for all that Alex Salmond is a former first minister and a consummate politician, it was as though he was a bit unused to having some of the difficult questions around that being put to him again, because for a long time you couldn't really ask about those sorts of things because it was the subject of an ongoing trial or overlapped with the contents of an ongoing trial but we saw I think some quite brave questions from from colleagues Mm -hmm. at other publications and you know at one point he was asked you know are you still a quote a creep creep comment was a a phrase um, used in an article by one of Alex Salmon's own defense witnesses. But, you know, he didn't have a line on that beyond there was a trial and and I was acquitted of, of everything. You just wonder if that's really the right line to, to take. You know, there was no space for reflection or apology or anything. And it certainly doesn't seem like that Alex Salmon is even attempting to suggest that he's in any way different from the person that he was when he was first minister, which I think is... Is interesting, but as you say, apart from the journalists asking those questions, and it felt very unusual them asking that after so long, where we where we didn't really talk about this. Mm. Yeah, there is a bit of discomfort around speaking about this, even among other politicians. You know, for whom it's in their interests to to be probing these things. Exactly, and and Nicholas Sturgeon has said that there are significant questions about the appropriateness of his return to public office. But even she's she had to caveat it by saying, "I take no pleasure whatsoever in saying this." Of course, she has a political interest in saying it, but also it sounded to me like the type of thing that many politicians would want to say, but maybe feel uncomfortable saying because we've had the trial. And like, you know, Alex Salmond has said, you know, we've listened to what the courts have said and now it's time to move on. And this is part of a democratic society. Of course, that's true. You know, we all have a right to be defended in court and and to accept what, what the court decides. Like you say, this is something different you know even if there had never been the trial or never been those particular allegations if the, if there were people on on his side of the argument saying that he had maybe behaved inappropriately you know and if his one of his closest allies in in Scottish politics Nicola Sturgeon had turned around and said I have questions about the appropriateness of him returning to public office then it is something that's important to talk about particularly as Alba seemed to be inviting almost this kind of scrutiny they they've said that they want 
particularly to appeal to women and they're going to have a women only conference in April yeah I get that'll be great yeah <laughs> so I mean it's it's interesting that they've taken that angle I wonder how much of that has to do with the SNP's policy on gender ID mm. and trying to draw a dividing line between Alex Salmond and his supporters and, and Nicola Sturgeon's more inclusive uh, approach towards that issue I wonder if that's got something to do with it but it does seem to be a little bit on the nose If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So we've had a number of different questions about grumblings from Labour sources about Keir Starmer's leadership over the weekend. And one of the questions was about Annalisa Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, about rumours that Keir Starmer wants to replace her. And there's been some dissatisfaction expressed by various anonymous voices about her performance so far in the role. Alva, this is something that this is a story that's sort of keeps flaring up doesn't it you've been you've been following it for some time yeah it's fascinating and we were joking before we came on that in a way we weren't really sure whether we wanted to talk about it again because it looks like we're just obsessed <laughs> with with the stability of Annalisa Dodds's role but I think that it is interesting that this was briefed to the Sunday Times and it again it's, it's not that different to the story that we talked about on the podcast a few months ago the suggestion that Annalisa Dodds could be replaced in a reshuffle after the May elections by Rachel Reeves, who would be the favourite, according to this report, or also potentially Lisa Nandy. And there was also some mention in that article that Jess Phillips could be in line for a promotion, and also potentially Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn. So already you can kind of hear from that that it's a real who's who of the Labour right. And that was the angle that all the people sending in questions picked up on because there were other stories, sort of grumblings from the right of the Labour Party about Keir Starmer's leadership and the suggestion that he's been pandering to the left, which I just don't think anyone, whether they're on the left of the Labour Party, I think that's actually a rare, like a rare, rare area of agreement between the left of the Labour Party and the Labour leadership, where I don't think either of them think that Keir Starmer has been pandering to them. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I can't exactly explain it in the 
it reads and I, I, I say this not having talked to anyone about this because my plan is to do that after we record this so this isn't informed by any particular conversations with people who would know but it just reads as though this is a briefing from someone trying to bounce Keir Starmer into that decision rather than mm. an absolutely certain course of events so I think my my main thing would be that to sort of dial up what I said the last time we talked about this, which is, you know, plainly Rachel Reeves does want to be shadow chancellor. And and why wouldn't she be? I mean, the second that she was elected as an MP years ago, she said that her dream was to be the first female chancellor. And there's no reason why that would have changed. And like I said last time, you don't need to have any insider knowledge to see that she is effectively on manoeuvres not in any sort of sinister way, but that she's the most, I think I said thrusting last time and I can't think of a better adjective, but she's the most thrusting member of the shadow cabinet. I think you could argue that she's been the most effective during Keir Starmer's leadership so far, Mm. that she has turned quite a little role in the shadow cabinet into a really big one. You know, last week we saw her calling for a COVID inquiry. To be honest, I don't really know why that was her and not a shadow cabinet colleague, but she has just expanded her role, you know, on procurement and dodgy PPE contracts because of her experience as a select committee chair. She has just owned that. She owned the Brexit stuff. She also secured this role. I mentioned this in my interview with her, which people are welcome to go back and read if they want more on Rachel Reeves. She also has this separate role working out the strategy for the Labour Party going into the next election and beyond. And she has really secured a position as one of the people with Keir Starmer's ear. And so even though they're not really politically that similar, like she's on the right of the Labour Party and he's a soft left Labour politician, which I think is worth remembering. Hmm. But on Brexit, if Stephen were here, he would say, you know, that they had the same journey on Brexit. So they're aligned on that. But I think also the thing that really struck me interviewing her a few months ago and also because we talk about Keir Starmer's thinking so much and spend so so much time paying careful attention to that. Mm. It just really struck me like how in sync they are in terms of their thinking about Labour's strategy and how it wins and Labour's fundamental purpose. I don't know if you would describe them as working class kids done good, but I think there's an element of that in how they see themselves in that they came from families that didn't have necessarily huge amounts of money and have a have a have a sense of more humble beginnings and of then just this huge sense while they had great professional success of the importance of the labor movement and mm. the ordinary working people that that movement is there to represent i think they're both as well as thinking that that, that winning back those people is strategically important it's really emotionally important for both of them And they each have this real sense of Labour history and the moments where Labour has won in the past. So basically, all that is to say is that Rachel Reeves has manoeuvred herself into a really pivotal position where from the second that Keir Starmer was elected, it was being briefed that in contention for the Shadow Chancellor role was Rachel Reeves or Annalisa Dodds. And in a way, frankly, that doesn't really make sense because... (laughs) Why would he appoint someone far far to the right of him as shadow chancellor? Where did that briefing come from? And then then Rachel Reeves has performed really well and, and now 
There are briefings again that Annalisa Dodds could be replaced by her. It's very clear to me, and I don't think that it's anything that listeners wouldn't be able to infer from for themselves that Rachel Reeves would love that role. But I'm I'm just not convinced yet that there's any reason to think that it's actually going to happen. What did you make of of also the kind of the, the wider theme of the right briefing against Keir Starmer over the weekend? Yeah, we've had lots of questions about that, asking sort of, you know, what do what do the right want by this? And, you know, like you mentioned, the kind of quite unlikely idea that Keir Starmer is pandering too much to the left of the party for their tastes. In a way, it's kind of like, you know, when the BBC gets it from both sides and they say, well, we must be doing something, right? Because we're, <laughs> you know, we're annoying right-wing people and left-wing people. So so we must be striking the right balance in our coverage. Perhaps this is perhaps this is a case of good balance for Keir Starmer. You know, if he's got people from the right of the party briefing against him in the Sunday papers, and he also has people from the left of the party expressing their discontent with some of his decisions on social media, then maybe he's, he's just about in the right place. But yeah, I mean, really, I think the right wing voices that that people have asked us questions about in You Ask Us this week, grumbling about Keir Starmer's leadership. These are still the politicians who are most connected to the press. You know, they are the people who will very, very likely have a lot of contacts in the in the Sundays and there'll be, you know, a phone call or a text message away. You know, lots of them, no offence to them, still don't have particularly beefy roles anymore. So, you know, some of them might be more likely to have have more time to be able to be briefing journalists and and bitching about the party. And, you know, they've they've had all of that time through the Corbyn years as well to become sort of professional gripers and renter quotes, really, some of them. To be honest, I'm not particularly surprised that they're the people who are given most prominence, you know, if you want to do a is Labour losing or, you know, what's going on with the Labour Party? Are they in crisis? Why aren't they doing better kind of story? Then, of course, those those kind of voices from the party are, are often the natural people to go to, whether it's under Corbyn, whether it's under Miliband or whether it's under Keir Starmer. But let's not forget that there were people who were really unsatisfied with Ed Miliband's leadership from the left of the party as well, including Corbyn and McDonnell and all of that crew, you know, from everything from trying to renationalise the railways and not just let the contracts run out to um, to welfare and, and immigration and those kind of topics. So, it's not really, I w- if I was Keir Starmer, I wouldn't necessarily be, be particularly concerned by the fact that I was having this criticism from b- both sides of the party, because that really is kind of part of the job for a Labour leader in opposition. So that wouldn't particularly concern me. And I wouldn't read too much into the fact that, that these, are the pe- these are the people who are, who are trying to kind of steer him in a different direction, really, because they would be doing that for any opposition leader who wasn't just singing from their hymn sheet of policies and preoccupations. What does kind of make me feel uncomfortable is the stuff about Annalise Dodds and saying, oh, you know, she's been disappointing in her performances. Maybe he's thinking of choosing someone else. And like you say, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but it is obvious that there are candidates that are being talked up by certain parts of the party, like Rachel Reeves. I find that quite uncomfortable because I almost think she, a woman is receiving criticism for things that people are just unhappy with Keir Starmer about. Maybe they don't like the way that he's coordinated the response to the budget, for example. The leader, the opposition leader is the one who responds to the budget, not not the shadow chancellor. And I just feel like there is a little bit of a sense of 
oh, we're not doing well enough because we've got this this woman in a in a beefy role and she's just not good enough for it. Mainly because people can't imagine a woman being shadow chancellor because there's never been one before. So I sometimes worry about the sort of, there is sometimes a sort of sexist whiff to some of this kind of briefing that makes me feel uncomfortable. Do, do you think that? Yeah, very much so. Well, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's hard to be the perfect politician. So there definitely are lots of things that Annalisa Dodds could have done better. I'm not sure if she necessarily could have done them better in a pandemic. I'm not sure how much some of that stuff has been within her control. And simultaneously, I think it is true that Rachel Reeves has performed better in the shadow cabinet than Annalisa Dodds because she's performed better than basically everyone just by kind of the dint of the kind of positions she's taken and the roles she she's had, particularly on PP procurement. But I fundamentally agree that if people have an issue with the Labour Party, it's not an issue with Annalisa Dodds. It's yeah. an issue with Keir Starmer and how he's been leading it and the people advising him. So swapping her out for someone who's been very effective or for someone else doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And also, yeah, the it's not just the griping that that appeared in the Sunday papers. It's also this attempt to talk up lots of people that I think undermines just the talking up of Rachel Reeves because um, it was Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn and Jess Phillips and all as well. And even like the mentions of Lisa Nandy, I think the quote was, you know, she hasn't been in a role that has enabled her to utilize her talents to the full and needs a more public facing role, which I thought was ridiculous because She's the Shadow Foreign Secretary, which is basically a spokesperson role. You work on foreign policy a bit, but really the leader works on the foreign policy and you're just the person who's wheeled out the most to do the public facing role. So I didn't think that was that convincing. I also didn't think that the idea that Yvette Cooper would return to the front bench when she is at her most effective as the chair of a powerful select committee. I just, it, the whole thing made me think you could see the partisan colors and the, yeah. the, the attempt, the attempt to, to bounce Keir Starmer into particular ca- shadow cabinet reshuffle decisions that I think made the whole thing a little bit less convincing, but always very interesting to talk about. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, Alva Ray. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to ask us a question for the next podcast, go to youaskus.co.uk. 